Good evening, this is Gary Kavner here on TRSI on Gript. Uh, we have today a guest in with us. I'm here with Colin Wright, PhD, a behavior or sorry, an evolutionary biologist and an assistant editor at Colette. Colin, it's a pleasure to have you on. Hey, thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. I wanted to um I mean I wanted to have a chat with you because I recently saw an article that you had put up where you were talking about the J.K. Rowling controversy. Now, for those who aren't aware, J.K. Rowling recently came out with a uh, couple of tweets that then became a full article, which we actually published on Gript, about her views on sex, effectively. And she faced an immense amount of pushback for that. Uh, You wrote an article coming off that saying that she was correct roughly in what she was saying but i mean before we get into the 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 content of the article itself i'm just curious why you decided to get involved there at all because this is not an area that's going to win you many friends yeah that's definitely true um so the i guess the biology of biological sex or uh addressing this sort of pervasive sex denialism that i've been seeing uh sort of growing over the years i I got interested in this just a, a couple of years ago um, just I, I sort of saw it creeping more and more. It usually started out actually as people making a distinguish, making a distinction between sex and gender. They would often say that you know sex is the biological part of male and female, and then gender is the sort of way that people identify or, or express themselves. Well, many different definitions of that. And I was always on board with that. But then there was sort of this this sleight of hand that was done where they were saying that well, not only is you know, gender something that you can identify into and as a spectrum, but then so is biological sex and that, you know, you can identify into a sex category the same way you can identify, you know, like uh, in, into a gender or you know, a political party type thing. You can just say what what you are and then that's, that's exactly literally what you are. So that's the debate I've been sort of wading into, for better or worse, <laughs> over the last few years. And... Um, I got interested in it maybe mainly because I think there's a lot of harms that go hand in hand with denying biological sex. Uh, and then J.K. Rowling sort of threw her hat in there as well um, with the Maya Forstadter case where she lost her job because she had this opinion that, you know, one cannot change their sex, that biological sex is a, is a legitimate um, way to categorize people. And then a judge ruled that she, that that belief was not a, like a philosophically, uh, respected belief that she can have and so things have been getting pretty nuts and jk rowling then sort of commented on maya forstadter's case saying that you know this is really absurd that someone's going to get fired for saying that biological sex is real then she followed up with some other tweets talking about you know her experiences and why she thinks we need to to uh, focus on biological sex as being important and this is just distinct from you know being trans and that uh, you know, we, we can we can look at gender identity and biological sex as two different types of phenomena. So I had actually written the article uh, before. It wasn't. It was scheduled to be released in about a, the same, maybe the same week that J.K. was talking about her her stuff. Um, and then it was just going to be. It was just going to come out on its own. It was just. It was just going to say sex is not a spectrum was the original title. And then J.K. Rowling started her new uh, wave of tweets, and we decided to sort of. Okay, we can capitalize on this moment. Let's change the title and have this change the intro and have this directly relate to what J.K. Rowling is talking about. So it was just really fortunate timing that she started talking about this stuff at the same around the same time that we were going to be releasing this article. Anyway, so then, kind of, would you say that to you, 
due maybe to your academic background, you were originally aware of this, but it was only when people started moving from gender and sex are different to gender is socially constructed and sex is socially constructed as well that you kind of felt, okay, now this is, I'm, now I need to say something about this. Yeah, so I've always been sort of interested in the meta, uh, I guess, questions relating to science. I'd always been sort of very active in the the debate between evolution and creationism and intelligent design. And I've just always been sort of a, a, someone who tried to champion science and distinguish it from non-science and pseudoscience. And I just saw that this was an example of pseudoscience and science denialism coming from the left uh, instead of, you know, the evangelical Christian right or something. Um, but it was, it made me hesitant to speak out on it because, you know, this was coming from people who are within the academy, who are my colleagues, who are other biologists who are saying the same thing that I thought was just clearly out of a more of a political and ideological perspective. Uh, uh, drive rather than uh, a concern of what's actually true. So I decided to throw my hat in the ring on this question because I just kept seeing that people were getting it wrong. Uh, because, you know, the, bi the biology of, of sex, while com complex in mechanisms, isn't really that complex in outcomes. And just the way people were talking about it um, just sort of drove me up a wall. And then <laughs> observing the harms I think it does, I just felt like I really couldn't stay silent about it. So it was very easy to push back against creationism because you don't tend to have a lot of those in academia? Yeah, I mean, there's just no threat uh, from within the academy. You can blast creationism, intelligent design, and they just there's no there's not many creationists or intelligent design proponents in the academy, and so you don't have to worry about you know your 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 left flank, I guess. Uh, but when you're in the academy and you see people denying these sort of basic fundamental scientific truths, uh, you do have to worry about your left flank. And when you're in the academy, everyone is basically uh, on the left. So um, it can be easy to become sort of a, sort of vilified within your community. And when you're in the scientific community, I mean, reputations matter a whole lot if you're trying to find jobs, if you're trying to get tenure, especially in this time of increased focus on uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion. And you don't want to be painted as someone who's anti-LGBT or for God's sakes a transphobe like people would accuse me of just by saying something like biological sex is real and you should care about it. And so yeah, there's, there's a lot of consequences um, for speaking out on this topic, even though I think it's much simpler than the intelligent design evolution debate, uh, much easier to argue. Um, it's, it's much more difficult socially to do and there's, there's a lot more that would keep people quiet uh, on this topic than within the sciences. So why do you think that the response from academia on this has been so one-sided? Because I've noted that myself, and it actually quite surprised me. Originally, I thought it was just an extension of the kind of idea of the blank slate, the tabula rasa. But then I started seeing people from hard scientific disciplines also seeming to agree with it, which I wouldn't have expected because I just, I had assumed they, there was far less of a belief in that sort of thing outside of the humanities. Yeah, well, I would, I would say the consequences only go, or the negative consequences only go one direction. So if you're in the sciences and you happen to just sort of be a very sort of um, social justice type lefty activist person, there's just no consequences for you to, to say some absurd claims like biological sex is a spectrum and it sort of 
sort of accords to our like innate idea of how we look at you know the features of people in society and like some people are more masculine looking more feminine so kind of it, it kind of sits well with with people in a certain way and then it, and it also sits well with this sort of idea of inclusivity for people who have you know, uh, different body types and all those things it just sounds really good um and so there's there's no negative consequences for those to speak out in favor of it but there's just all kinds of negative consequences for people who don't agree with it, which I would argue is likely most people. Um, but this, the, the nature of academia itself, like most people don't realize how much reputation really matters in, in a field like biology, how tight-knit the communities are. I mean, I studied, studied social behavior in insects and spiders, and you pretty much know everyone who's doing that type of research. And if you're all of a sudden seen as this, this problematic figure, um, you know, you're, you're doing interviews, you don't want review committees to to know your name and associate it with something bad. Um, you know, you've put in up until the point where I was, you know, I was a postdoc for two years, so over a decade of, of work getting my, my BS, my PhD, now doing research, and there's just so much to sacrifice uh, by just deciding to stick your head out on some random topic, you know, a topic such as this, like, biological sex is real, that you feel that you're more than justified to say on scientific grounds. But for a lot of people, I mean, do you really want to risk sacrificing all that, especially if you have a family or this is your only way your income, people are dependent on you? I'm lucky in a sense I don't have, you know, children or a wife or anything like that that's relying on me for income. So I was, in a sense, uh, kind of free from a lot of those those restrictions people might place on themselves for speaking up, but it still um, likely contributed to sort of tanking my academic career. I'm sort of lucky in the sense that me doubling down so hard on that just opened up other doors that uh, that I wouldn't have had before. But that's maybe not an option that is open to most people. So, so most I mean, people, it's just easier just to remain you know, remain silent. So I mean, when you started talking about this, because you sort of feel the academics around you kind of just pulling back, kind of saying, look, why are you making this an issue? Just whatever you think. You don't need to publicly tell people it and draw attention kind of thing. Yeah. I ha and it's not even just a feeling of it, too. It's, it's you know, I've had very, very close friends and colleagues who I've published papers with who sent me, you know, a text message in the morning saying, hey, Colin, you know, I've People are asking about our, our relationship because we've co-authored papers together. You know, papers on the behavior of spiders, just so we're clear, spiders and ants. Nothing, nothing controversial. And people are reaching out to them and saying that, well, we noticed that you've, you, know, you were in grad school with them and you were published papers with them. And they're just basically um, subjecting them to a, you know, some sort of like struggle session and saying, you know, what is... What is your opinion on Colin? Do you agree with the things he said? You're his friend. You, know, you, you speak about him. You were on papers with him. And he sent me this message saying that I need to denounce you publicly because I'm just getting, I'm getting too many of these emails from, from friends and colleagues uh, questioning my relationship with you. And so I just, I, this is something I need to do. And he's like, you know, sorry, I have to do it, but it's, you know, it's just going to cover his own butt in his career. And it, it wasn't so much, I wasn't upset that he wanted to, to, you know, denounce my views. Like, I'm more than happy to have any, even a close friend publicly say I disagree with Colin on XYZ. Mm. But the, the most troubling part of it was the fact that it was 
he was felt pressure from colleagues in his field that were sort of looking at him with a side eye and you know he was worried that just me doing unrelated things is just going to give splash damage onto his career because that kind of shows you the social pressures you don't even have to say anything controversial if you're just on a paper with somebody a paper on spider behavior with someone who's controversial or whatever you feel the need that you're, you're going to start feeling the pressure too this this guilt by association is just really getting out of hand so you were less poisonous and more sort of radioactive yeah, definitely. Like everyone sort of near me <laughs> felt the need to distance themselves from me, and uh, a lot of people at you know at Penn State where I was a postdoc, the diversity committees were you know contacting my my PIs in my lab, and students were saying that they felt unsafe because the you know that said my Wall Street Journal article was uh, denying the existence of non-binary people and it was attack on trans individuals, and they didn't feel safe on campus knowing that I'm working there, like as if I'm going to assault people on campus. I mean, I just wrote an, an essay, and otherwise I was just in my lab playing with ants. Like, I'm, <laughs> just the, the idea that they should feel unsafe because I just wrote an, art, an essay is just is ridiculous. We hear a lot of talk about sex and gender and the difference between these things, but it's usually laymen talking about it. Biology is your area. This is the area you specialize in. It's where you got your doctorate. So... I'm just curious, to you, what are gender and sex, and what is the difference between them? What do they actually mean to you? So, yeah, it's, it's, I think it's one of the most confusing topics that we have, or at least the conversations always devolve when we talk about, especially gender, because gender really has so many different meanings that are being thrown around in public discourse right now. Uh, you have sort of this radical feminist definition of gender that is um, seen as sort of a, a social construct, sort of the the societal norms and expectations that we place on individuals based on their biological sex. So sort of sort of group stereotypes that are sort of uh, passed along and they're, they're culturally generated. So like the idea that, you know, um, you know, if, if, if you, if a male is acting more feminine then you know, they, they're called names are called like a girl, they're called, you know, all, all, sort of the, the pressure to conform to sort of, stereotypical ideas of masculinity and femininity. And then you have other people who talk about gender as being these innate evolved behavioral differences between males and females. Those are sometimes that's how people use gender. Then there's the psychological sense that, uh, of gender as a sort of this, uh, an internal sense of yourself as uh, as a male or female or how, how you identify the stereotypes. And this is sort of similar in the, the trans community where where how they define gender, and then now you sort of have this tumblerized idea of of gender, which is just just an identity, and it, it comes down to just to what you assert you are. And there's there's a list of a hundred genders, like neutral and bigender, gender fluid, and all these. And these are just sort of these internet made up categories that really don't have a lot of uh, uh, clinical relevance in a sense. They're just sort of a trendy thing. So whenever you see people talking about gender online, the reason they, the conversation just completely devolves because everyone thinks they know what gender is, mm. but they're all using different definitions. And so they just talk past each other and it just, it just turns into a huge mess. So I, I don't personally have a definition of gender. I just, whenever someone uses the word gender, I just say, I'm just interested in the concept behind the word. So I'll just say like, what, what's your definition of gender? Because I don't want to get hung up on the semantics. I just care about what they mean when they say it. Uh, but what, where I do draw a line is when I talk about biological sex and 
what male and female are, because that's this is the realm of, of science now, and this is where we need to be precise about what these are. Male and females are, are biological categories that relate to sort of the, uh, the way your bodies are organized around producing a certain type of uh, sex cell, basically. Um, so I try to keep that as distinct as possible. Um, I try to be pretty distinct about male and female and what those are, and then when it comes to gender, I just ask people what they mean by gender. The same way if someone were to ask me if I you know, believe in God or something, I would ask, well, what do you mean by that? Because there's so many different definitions of God out there. Who knows? Uh, I could, if, if God is energy, then sure, I believe in energy. So now I believe in God. Uh, I see the same way with gender. There's just so many conflicting definitions out there that it's, it's hard to know where to start. It used to be that when people talked about gender and transgenderism, there was a sort of sex is binary and transgenderism is where a person is male, but they think they're female or present as female. And then over time, that started to become sex is a spectrum and transgenderism has to be widened substantially. And you start getting more people talking about non-binary and things like that. So I suppose the question there would be uh, to you is, I suppose as a biologist, is sex binary or is it a spectrum? Sex itself is a binary in the sense that there are only two sexes and intersex individuals are not a third sex. <laughs> so it's, there's, a, there's sort of a mistake people are making. Um, when a biologist says that there are only two sexes or that sex is binary, what they're not saying is that every single human on Earth can be unambiguously classified as either male or female. That's not what we're saying. We're saying, you know, some intersex people exist who have uh, genitals and primary sex organs that may fall somewhere in between, that might not be uh, easily classifiable or, you know, objectively able to be placed in either category. Okay, these, some of these individuals exist who might defy an easy classification. Uh, but for the vast majority of humans, they can be easily categorized as male or female. And the existence of some ambiguity for less than 0.02% of the population doesn't negate the existence of uh, the, the fact that the vast majority are either or. Uh, so if you, if you have a determinable sex, you're either male or female. So in that sense, sex is binary, uh, whereas human body types, I guess, generally are not binary, um, if, that makes, if that makes sense, I guess. Because um, there's only, sex is sort of broadly defined as a concept as uh, individuals who produce either sperm or ova. So males are in this, the, um, the organisms that produce sperm. Uh, females are defined you know, in a broad sense as individuals that produce ova. But that's sort of just a general kind of a um, concept of biological sex. But when we actually mm. go and sex the uh, individual organisms, flesh and blood individuals, well, not all individuals produce sperm or ova, you know, like prepubescent males don't. Um, and some people who just have, you know, certain inter intersex conditions might not be able to produce them. They might just be infertile for all kinds of reasons. Uh, Postmenopausal women, for instance, they no longer ovulating and producing eggs. But these people still have sexes. Like we, we can still tell a, a prepubescent male is a male, even though they don't produce sperm yet. That's because with individuals, we... we define their sex as sort of how their bodies are organized around the production of 
either sperm or ovary, which is the presence of either testes or uh, ovaries, basically. Um, so that's that's sort of the, the the broad way to think about biological sex. Is that sex itself is binary? Human body types in general are not. Um, if that makes sense to you. <laughs> One of the things it's, I hear yeah. I, I hear brought up is that there's no simple individual single way to tell what sex someone is, uh, assuming that you can't guess off secondary sex characteristics. Which occurs, is there any way to just simple test to tell what sex a person is? Yeah, so the single trait that will definitively tell you if someone is biologically male or female <laughs> is whether they have developed ovaries or testes, basically. Um, now, that doesn't mean that you know, there are some edge cases where people might develop ovotestes or or you know some some ambiguous um, uh, gonads that aren't fully differentiated, um, and in some rare cases, yeah, you might not be able to say this individual is definitively male or female. Um, but that doesn't mean that when someone does show that you know someone has clearly identifiable testes or ovaries, they are male or female. They they that can that they can be easily classified into these categories. So the existence of these edge cases doesn't negate the existence of these real categories based on uh, primary sex characteristics, so the, the, the type of gonad that they have. To what extent do you think that gender is influenced by biology? Do you think they're very strongly linked and that there is a sort of sexual determinism there? Or do you think it's, it's a much looser or kind of more uh, spread out depending on the individual sort of thing? Yes, so if we're using gender in the definition of sort of evolved behavior differences or just behavioral differences in general that we see, um, mm. I would say, yeah, absolutely. Your sex is going to influence uh, the way that you behave. I mean, we see this in other species too, where they have, you know, males and females. And we, I don't think we think that, uh, you know, meadow voles have uh, patriarchy or different, you know, different types of socialized uh, mass, uh, ideas of masculine femininity that's being hand down, right? But we we do see these common trends of males and the influence of testosterone and just about every mammalian species you can think of uh, that lead to differences in behavior. And we see the exact same behavioral differences that we would predict based on general mammalian trends. We see these show up in humans as well, the same uh, behavior differences in our closest primate relatives. So this notion that we don't have any sort of evolved sex differences or they're purely the result of social factors, you would have to just think that, you know, maybe we had them before because, you know, our common ancestors all have these and somehow over time we uniquely lost all of those innate traits and then somehow social factors recapitulated all of those exact same traits uh, that we used to have, but it's somehow not innate now, but it just, just so happens to align perfectly with the innate factor we see in other species. So that's that's just like this huge circuitous w way to, to go around and try to insist these are these are social factors. Where if you just do the more sort of scientifically parsimonious take, it's like well maybe we inherited these behavioral differences from uh, you know our most recent common ancestor. And, you know, it just makes more sense if you just place ourselves within the animal kingdom and you can just look at us as just another primate, just another mammal, and you can make the predictions 
about how we should behave and based on our sexual dimorphism. And it, it's just, we, we are very typical of most primates and mammals in that sense. I have started to hear a lot more said amongst the general public about things like Cordelia Fine's work, uh, stuff like testosterone wrecks in that area. Yeah, so she is definitely one of those activists that tries to deny the existence of these sex-related differences. And what, what they usually do is it's sort of this, this fallacy where they, they look at the overlap in behavioral differences between males and females or the influence of testosterone. And they'll say, like, you know, testosterone in some males is really high and they're not aggressive and some testosterone is really low in females and they're aggressive. And so they, they use these, this, this notion that because there are outliers and individuals who don't fit the general trends, uh, because the distributions are overlapping between males and females on certain traits that you can't say anything definitively about males or females. But no, no scientist is saying that, you know, males and females are these distinct, you know, behavioral groups. Like male and female are distinct, but the behaviors and anything that's attached onto it, like there's, there's definitely an overlap between males and females. And just because you can get some males who are more, you know, stereotypically feminine in their behaviors and some females that are more stereotypically masculine who don't fit sort of the general trends you see with females. It doesn't mean that there aren't these average differences within the group. You can look at the averages. You, you can't, um, basically what they're saying, they're, they're trying to use individual data points to, to dismiss uh, group level phenomenon. That's just not how, that's not how you do proper science on, on these types of questions. No one's saying that this is, you're biologically determined to do certain things if you're male and female. It's just that being male and female comes with differences in your hormonal milieu, which is going to affect, you know, influence your behaviors in certain ways on average. And at a group level, you can see how these sort of play out. And that's what we would expect with evolution and having variation in certain traits that can be selected for. There's a point you make in your Wall Street uh, Journal article where you're talking about uh, gay men and gay women. And it's something I've been kind of thinking about in relation to gender in that for all the people saying that a more fluid understanding of gender will decrease oppression and allow people to be more authentically themselves, in many ways it seems to strengthen traditional perceptions of masculine and female traits in that before you could be an effeminate boy or you could be a tomboyish girl, whereas now those are masculine or feminine actions. And in some cases, some people might say, well, you're presenting as a, a boy or a girl when you do those. So I was just, was that what you were thinking when you were talking about the, um, about the impact of the erasion of sex on uh, feminine boys, masculine girls, and yeah. gay people. Yeah, it's it's well known in, in the literature that homosexuals do tend to um, have behaviors, mannerisms, preferences that are more alike, uh, more akin to the opposite sex. Um, that's just an extremely robust <laughs> signal that, that comes out. Um, and so now what we're seeing is a lot of trans activists, they are they're reinterpreting sort of the behavior of young boys and girls who are very gender non-conforming um, that would otherwise most likely grow up to be gay adults. Um, they're sort of putting them down a pathway and making them sort of question their 
their biological sex instead. Um, so we know that there's this huge increase in gender um, of, of youth claiming to have to be trans, um, a huge spike uh, from what we've seen, you know, a 4,000 plus percent increase. Um, and a lot of the reasons these people are coming saying that they're trans is because they have this sort of gender non-conforming behavior. And when people are denying the reality of biological sex, you know, that their differences in their behavior and their how their behavior maps on to members of their own sex and the opposite sex is sort of leading to this confusion, at least I think, about how people are interpreting their own sex, basically. So they're they're confusing the fact that they have behavioral traits and preferences and mannerisms that are more akin to the other sex. They're confusing that with saying, well, maybe I'm that means I'm actually the opposite sex on the inside. And we know that most people who are gender dysphoric uh, will grow out of it um, and grow up to be just homosexual adults. And so I guess my, my biggest fear, and with Emma as well, is that we're actually sort of putting children down a pathway uh, where they almost almost always would come out to be a homosexual adult. We're instead saying, confusing them by saying, well, maybe you're actually trans. And then that's a pathway that leads to cross-sex hormones and surgery and all this. So um, there's definitely a lot of harms that can go with that. And it's, it's sort of a way, I, I see it as being a um, sort of a new type of, of gay conversion therapy where we're instead of trying to make people's minds align with their bodies, we're sort of now forcing or, or influencing people to make their bodies conform to their minds. Uh, and I think that's just a very, very dangerous path to go down. I see it as being very homophobic in its most sort of grotesque forms um, and just are really ignorant in, in the more benign forms. Just on, you were saying there about a 4,000% increase. We seem to be seeing maybe the last not even the last five years, maybe the last two or three years, an increase in the number of people who are detransitioning. I haven't seen much research on it, though. It still seems to be a fairly small amount of cases because, I mean, any aspect of this it actually impacts on a relatively small amount of people. But I was wondering, are you familiar with any research on that or have you seen anything on that that suggests those two are linked? So there's there's not a huge a lot of research right now because people are only re very recently starting to go through the detransition. Um, we do know that the big spike, that 4,000 plus percent spike in individuals uh, of, of kids, basically adolescents claiming to be trans, uh, it's mostly um, young females that are, that are claiming to be trans, which is interesting because previously it had been reversed. It had been uh, young males that were more likely to come out and say that they're trans, but there's something for some reason this big increase has also come with a concomitant flip in in the, in the types of individuals, uh, the sex of the individual that's claiming it. And we also see that almost every single person that is detransitioning also is uh, a natal female. So uh, the females that transition to, to being uh, men and then now detransitioning back into um, you know, their original, uh, uh, they're, they're, they're no longer identifying as, as a man, they're now identifying as a woman, um, and aligned with their sex. So that's, I think there's going to be a lot more data. I know Lisa Littman, who did her study on rapid onset gender dysphoria, she's doing studies now, or at least trying to do the initial data gathering 
um, step in trying to sort of interview detransitioning people, talking about uh, asking them questions about how they were influenced to go down this route and why the reasons for detransitioning and everything. This is sort of get um, get an idea of of the causes behind it. So uh, I think this is be in the next few years we should have a lot more information on sort of the, the whole detrans community. But I think it's I think we're going to see even more and more and more given that what it means to be trans nowadays is very different from what it used to mean just five or ten years ago. It's, it's turned into sort of more of an ideological thing rather than a um, just a psychological condition of, of this having a feeling of um, mind-body disjunction. Interesting what you say there on an ideological point. When I was younger, maybe even young, the understanding was people I talked to, particularly in the political space, was that transgenderism was an issue with brain formation caused possibly due to some sort of hormonal issue during gestation. And it wasn't, there was no talk of gender as a social construct. It was, this is a medical issue. Mm-hmm. And that, um, I was just wondering, is there any, was there any validity to that? I mean, you don't really hear it talked about at all anymore because everything has broadened so much. It doesn't seem to even be a consideration. Yeah, I mean, there's, so gender dysphoria in its traditional definition was basically just a severe debilitating anxiety um, that results from this perception that your body is not what it should have been, that you've essentially, you have this feeling you've, uh, you were born with the wrong body, that you, you should have been a, the opposite sex. Um, it's not true that you should have been or that you are on the inside the opposite sex it's it's a purely psychological condition that's just this this feeling it's it's a very and that that itself is a real phenomenon um that i think is i mean it's, it's i think it's clearly a real phenomenon some people feel this very strongly and i think that transitioning for some is is, a, is an option that can help sort of relieve them of that uh the severe feelings of anxiety and despair um from their gender dysphoria but what we what we see now is what what is it what it means to be trans is no longer sort of not identifying with the sex that you were born as but it's more um it's it's more based on uh the gender identity that you have and gender identity is now defined as sort of how your relationship to socially constructed gender norms or usually boils down to stereotypes of masculinity and femininity and societally enforced gender roles and so this is when you see non-binary people what they're claiming you know they're claiming to not even be on the male female axis axis of sex altogether but like what could that possibly mean because most binary non-binary people are objectively male or female so what what does it even mean to not identify as as your as male or female. Well, to them, it's not, has nothing to do with male or female. It has to do with stereotypes of masculinity and femininity and gender roles. So a non-binary person is someone who doesn't agree with masculine and feminine stereotypes, and they're considered to be a subset of the trans community. And so, uh, and so you, a trans woman now is, is someone who just doesn't agree with feminine stereotypes. Uh, or to, with masculine stereotypes, they feel more comfortable with feminine ones. But this is—it's a drastic change from this, the previous idea of just this anxiety of feeling of being born in the wrong body to what it is now, which is just like not identifying with gender stereotypes. Which 
is crazy because I think most people don't identify with the most drastic caricature of their of their sex, you know, the, the pure gender stereotype. I sure don't. I don't consider myself to be, you know, the most masculine person in the world. I'm not aggressive. I'm not, you know, there's so many stereotypical masculine thing, things that I don't fit into. But that doesn't mean that I'm trans. But according to them, I guess I would be, in a sense, uh, or at least non-binary, since I don't identify with any of these certain stereotypes. Um, and so what essentially we're doing is we're using the medical treatments that are designed for gender dysphoria as previously defined as this anxiety of mind-body disjunction to a wholly new phenomenon of people who are just essentially rejecting gender norms. And I think that's an incredibly harmful thing. and People somehow are just not really addressing that central issue. What do you think would be the best way for a society to deal with this issue? That's a, that's a tough question. I mean, I think we need to move beyond judging people as by the stereotypes of their groups. I agree with a lot of sort of the gender critical feminists in the sense that we don't want to make more genders, which they view as sort of this, the societal influence to conform to certain uh, ways based on your sex. I think we should judge people as individuals, accept that there are going to be masculine females and feminine males and don't let don't put people in boxes don't suggest that they might not be the sex that they uh, on the inside that they are on the outside or deny sex altogether uh, i just think we, we just need to be more accepting of the diversity within and between sexes and not hold everyone as just or assume everyone's gonna going to or should be a reflection of 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 gender stereotypes and i guess that's that's a society that i want to live into i i I understand that some individuals are going to have gender dysphoria, and I think there's some of these individuals should be able to transition. But I think you should be able to transition if you're a prepubertal child and put them on puberty blockers. Probably not in most cases, if not all cases, but I'm, I'm, I will be willing to hear an argument about uh, ways you can identify certain children who you're almost guaranteed that won't ever desist. And, um, you know, I, I, I think we just need more data on these cases right now, but it's such a minefield. Uh, you can't even ask these these questions to a large degree without people just calling names. And so it's it's really um, put the brakes on actual research that can can help address these really important issues. So ironically enough, the people who think that they're protecting transgender individuals by ensuring that discussions they find uncomfortable don't occur may lead to yeah. a reduction in the quality of research and actually harm them. Yeah, and for like, this is a, a, a perfect example of this. So Lisa Lippman, who wrote the Rapid Onset Gender Dysphoria paper, people, activists criticized her relentlessly because she interviewed parents and not the children directly. And so they're saying, you know, well, the parents are going to have all these different regressive ideas of what it means. And they, you know, they have all, they have different motivations uh, and incentives to say one thing that might not be what their son or daughter was saying. And so and it's, it's, it's a fair remark, although th those methods have been used in, you know, parent surveys are, are common. It's not, it's not a terrible study. It's, it's a good pilot and follow-up studies are necessary. And so she, you know, largely agreed saying that we need to do more research on this. And then, so she then designed a research project where she was going to be interviewing detransitioners and, you know, these and kids who are claiming to be trans directly, like actually interviewing the kids themselves. 
And when she set up the website to start doing the surveys, well, she was flooded by a bunch of trans activists who just, you know, flooded the surveys with false questions and uh, just sort of broke the poll so that she couldn't have any, uh, get any data on this. But she was doing exactly what they said she should be doing. And that's apparently not even acceptable. So she's trying again uh, to do this with more screening methods. But uh, yeah, so it's their, their actions don't really conform to what they, what they say that they want. Um, seem to be trying to shut it down, uh, all investigation, uh, and just go by their, their ideology. Probably the most common pushback I've seen whenever anyone asks questions about this uh, th that they don't want to have a conversation about. I'm curious if you received this yourself is the idea that any discussion of this will lead to the suicide of transgender people, that you will literally kill transgender people. An argument which to me seems to be profoundly infantilizing of transgender people on one level, but also, from the way I've seen it used, doesn't seem to be used in good faith. It seems like more of a weapon. I'm just curious if you've run into that yourself. Yeah, and that's very common very common to have thrown at me. Um, but when you actually look at the data of individuals who've transitioned and before they transition, there's there's no relationship between the suicide rates of before and after transition. So this is, it's just a, a made up statistic that they use to try to shut down any anyone who's um, arguing against sort of the main central dogma of the current sort of Tumblrized Transgender ideology, I guess, is the best way I can describe it. Why do you think that is, that there's not that much difference between suicide rates before and after transitioning? Um, I think a lot of the times transition is sold as this, this miracle cure, whereas you'll have a lot of trans individuals saying that, you know, gender dysphoria isn't something that ever goes away. It's something that can be mitigated but not necessarily um, completely cured. I mean, they're going to have days that are going to be more or less uh, good or bad in the sense of how much they feel dysphoric, but it's it's not a cure-all for everything. And I think a lot of people might, this is me speculating here, might, might assume that it's going to solve everything, but it in fact doesn't solve everything because being trans isn't, isn't just a hermetically sealed uh, condition. It's, it has so many different comorbidities that go along with it there and other mental health issues that are used in tandem. And a lot of times these are ignored and it's just sort of treated as, oh, you're, you're trans, you have gender dysphoria. And so they try to treat that one thing as if, oh, as if it's the only, the only thing that's wrong, whereas a lot of times gender dysphoria can be sort of a consequence of a lot of different underlying, um, uh, underlying factors which are usually just not addressed by just simply transitioning somebody to the, to the opposite, opposite sex. Um, and again, these are things that a lot, of, uh, a lot of physicians are bringing up but are getting slammed for even saying because uh, it's considered to be you know, transphobic because it's maybe to, to question their gender dysphoria or the mechanisms leading it to is to you know, deny their existence and is to be transphobic in itself. So we see a pattern here of sort of shutting down all inquiry that could actually lead to helping certain individuals who are, who are quite vulnerable now. One of the areas where I think we've seen sex and gender become very blurred altogether has been athletic competition. 
I have seen some very odd things in the field. I remember reading a medical report on a transgender woman which said she had increased bone density versus an average woman, but that that wasn't seen to give her any competitive advantage. And that was in relation to an MMA fight, the <laughs> during which she shattered the eye socket of her opponent. Now, we seem to be seeing the international organizations move in a direction of limiting testosterone and things like that. Wasn't there, there was a period there where we had a very odd period where female sporting records were just being broken all over the place. And there seemed to be very few people going, that may be an issue with transgender athletes. Um, was that something you paid any attention to or is it a field that's of any interest to you? What's going on yeah. in athletics? Yeah, I definitely have focused a lot about athletics. I've mentioned it in um, the Wall Street Journal article specifically. We talk about that, um, you know, briefly, but it's it's definitely an important issue because, you know, when you look at the reasons why we have segregated sports based on sex in the first place, it has nothing to do with the way people identify. I mean, it would it's if it were based on identity, it would make about as much sense as having different sports leagues for Republicans and Democrats. There's nothing about your political affiliation that is going to influence your ability to shoot basketball. Uh, And just likewise, there's nothing about the way that you're identifying that's going to contribute to your jumping ability and how tall you are and how how strong you are. Like these are, your, your identity is completely irrelevant to your athletic performance, whereas your biological sex is centrally important or at least is one of the biggest factors that needs to be taken into account, uh, given the influence of testosterone uh, on on your bodies. And a lot of what's ignored here is people try to sort of mitigate the effects of testosterone by saying we need to lower testosterone limits down for uh, trans athletes, you know, trans women, so they can compete with females. But this is completely missing the point, because male athletes don't have their advantage just because of their current circulating levels of testosterone, that's certainly part of it. I mean, it, it contributes to strength differences to some degree. But what's being ignored is the effect of past high levels of testosterone in shaping the body and how it develops through puberty and makes them grow taller and gets them bigger bones and longer arms and stronger hands. And these are not reversed. You don't get tall. You don't get shorter when you start taking, uh, you know, lower your testosterone levels. You don't lose all the muscle uh, either and you don't you know, you're, you're, you don't lose bone density and the tendon strength and you know your broad shoulders and narrow hips that make you better at running there's just so much that's not reversed and accounted for by just simply lowering testosterone levels uh, this seems to be getting ignored and uh, I think it's really important not just because of issues of fairness uh, but issues of, of safety as well I and mean, if you can't have male athletes competing as females in sports like rugby or um, football and things like that because yeah I mean, there's just people are going to get hurt or could even even die if you if you have these uh, if you allow that to happen but most people don't fight other people regularly they don't engage in heavy physical competition with each other where you could see that the different sexes have different capabilities but with athletics the distance, the differences are very obviously clear. You can see them immediately. You can compare the race times of the fastest female uh, athletes with male. So I would have thought it would be the last place you'd see quite a widespread acceptance of this idea. But it, in fact, it seemed to be one of the first areas. Yeah, 
I think an issue people have is they're looking at sort of their everyday experience. And, you know, people know that males are taller and stronger on females than average, but everyone knows, you know, a, a really athletic girl in their lives in their high school or, you know, se several girls who are faster than most of the males or who are taller than a lot of males. And, you know, a lot of males, people know a lot of males who are particularly scrawny and short and aren't very good at athletically. And so people use this and say, like, well, I, I know that one girl in my high school who is, like, really, really good at basketball, and she's better than most a lot of the guys were. And these, these individuals happen. I mean, if you're talking about just your general everyday experience, yeah, there is overlap. But we're, because the people we see tend to be towards the center of the bell curve, you know, of, of abilities. But when we're talking about athletics, and especially when we're talking about elite athletics at the highest level, in the NBA and the Olympics and whatever, Small average differences, you know, even even really small average differences in height or in run times, uh, these these small average differences in the population as a whole can turn into huge differences if you go to the very tail end of the distribution, the top 0.1% of the population. Uh, like you might be able to say that you know um, jumping ability, you know maybe maybe generally I'm going to make up a number that like males are uh, if you were to select individuals at random, if you select a male, they're like for the 60% chance of, of being able to outjump a female chosen at random. Okay, so maybe a small average difference, but then if you go to say like, well, what's the difference at the top end of the distribution? Well, it's almost all going to be populated by males out there. Um, and also males have just a greater variability in their traits generally. It's just sort of a general phenomenon. Um, so people are just kind of confusing their average middle of the bell curve experiences and they're insisting that those exist at the tail ends of the bell curve as well, where it's the opposite is completely true. Like these small differences in averages contribute to huge differences in the tails where you get, um, like for instance, the, the fastest 15, 14 year old boy right now in the U.S., um, hundreds of these 15 year old boys can run faster than the fastest female Olympians ever. They could, they could shatter the female Olympic record right now, and they're only 15 years old. Uh, that just shows that, you know, we're, we're confusing sort of the, the distributions here between the sexes, and that's something that we need to, to really address. I mean, that is something I, I do hear from people that, okay, let's say, yes, they are faster or they're stronger, but there's a very small number of them, so the chance of them actual the, the enough transgender athletes going into a female sport to you know take it over entirely would be incredibly slim yeah it's, it's i commonly hear that but i mean it's they're still taking the spot of a biological female who would otherwise have been in that spot and the thing we see though is that given the distributions like so if you have um for instance, there's this one athlete, a runner, her name is Cece Telfer, and I can't remember their name before they transitioned, but they were, they did the hurdles, and we see this with weightlifters too, and you get a lot of mediocre male uh, athletes who are not placing first or second, no, they're just by all means middle of the road male athletes, and then after they transition to female, they then start competing with female, and then all of a sudden they're competing at the highest levels of, among females. They're placing way higher than you would expect them to be placed, you know, just by average. You know, if, if you were, if transitioning were to actually be a fully complete process and 
there were no more effects of your, your biological sex. You'd expect someone who's, you know, in the 30th percentile competing as males after transition to still be in the 30th percentile competing as females. So what we see is the opposite. We see that mediocre males who then transition tend to then be competing way at a way higher level with females than they would have, uh, than they were able to compete with males at all. So it might not be the case that you'll see trans athletes always win, but I mean, it's, it's still an unfair advantage that they have. I mean, if you were to give someone, like there's these new Nike shoes that are being banned in the Olympics because they make somebody faster. You could make the same argument in saying that like, well, you know, what if we let some people use these shoes to make them faster? It doesn't mean that people wearing those shoes are going to win every time. But I think most people can see in that case, they're like, well, it's still not fair to let anybody wear these shoes because it gives them an unfair advantage. And just because the, wearing the shoes doesn't guarantee somebody to win doesn't make it fair. <laughs> and so uh, that's sort of my response to that argument, where it doesn't, they don't need to be taking over the sport completely, winning gold medals left and right for it to not be fair and to not be something that, that we were concerned about. So, Colin, just, to, just as a final question, we were talking there about how you'd like society to uh, deal with transgenderism and view transgenderism. But I'm just curious, on your view, if we don't go down that path, if we instead continue down the path we're on, where we're seeing 4,000% increases, we're seeing many, many young girls go for this, I know we're seeing increasing concerns about the impact of some of the drugs used in transitioning, particularly for young girls, on their fertility for the rest of their life. What do you think the outcome will be if things continue as they are or, in fact, accelerate down this path? Um, I think it will be, I think we'll, I think we'll see a lot of lawsuits, for one, of individuals who think that they were preyed upon and used as sort of these ideological cons in in some of these movements that are, have removed a lot of the safeguards that should be in place to before we allow children to have what's essentially experimental medicine performed on them. Um, so there's those very real harms in that sense of like affecting real lives and people's bodies and livelihoods. But I think another, what I'm in a sense more concerned about, maybe not more, but it's sort of a, a different type of concern, is just our drifting away from being able to know what's real <laughs> in reality itself. You know, if we're able to deny that biological sex is real and something is clearly night and day as, as sports and that, that how male bodies are clearly better suited to, to be stronger and, and taller and dominate at sports, um, we're putting uh, male prisoners in female prisons and some of these individuals have been you know, are, are in prison because they've, they've raped females before and now we're putting them in, in female prisons just because they're identifying this way. And just this, this complete over, uh, overhaul of, of reinterpreting biological sex as gender identity, I just think are tethered to reality. It could just, it's going to be wearing thinner and thinner. And I don't, I don't know where that leads to, but it doesn't seem like it can lead to anywhere else but a total chaos <laughs> in so many ways. Um, th th to me, this is an easy one, uh, knowing that biological sex is real. If we can't get this one right, I just don't see how we can expect to get anything else right. You know, this is, I, I speak out against this topic so much because I kind of view it as 
almost like reality's last stand. Like this is the easy low hanging fruit. If we can't get this right, then we're just we're just screwed to get anything right in the future. That might sound hyperbolic, but I, I really think man, this it, it could it could get crazy, and it's already crazy. We're seeing just now in the news of of everything else that's going on. So. Yeah, this is this is a hill that I'm willing to die on because I think uh, it, it, it's just important to to maintain reality to some degree because we can't lose our our grip. Of all the hills to die on, objective reality probably isn't the worst <laughs> of them. Yeah, I mean, as a scientist, I thought that's what the hill we're supposed to die on, but apparently, my a lot of my colleagues disagree with that. Colin Rice uh, of Quillette, it has been an absolute pleasure to talk to you. Thank you so much. It was great.